We'll open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll continue in the third part of this little series that includes verses 22, 23, and 24 on a summons for a new life. A summons for a new life. This is kind of the conclusion to the section that began back in verse 17. Let me get a running start with you just so that we remember where we've been. Ephesians 4, verse 17, Paul says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk, and we looked at the fact that that means to live, that you live no longer just as the Gentiles also walk or live, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But, but you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. It should be no surprise to anyone that one of our most basic drives as humans is to live a life of comfort and pleasure. If you think about it, most of our actions can be traced back to this drive, this, this desire, comfort and pleasure. In fact, we instinctively try to put away unpleasant experiences, unpleasant encounters, and pursue comfort and pleasure. Dial this into closer focus. Our default protocol, the way we live and act and respond, is to find comfort, to find pleasure to try to eliminate those things that cause us discomfort and pain, to add things that bring us comfort and enjoyment. These instincts, as they are, reflexes, as they were, are understandable as they are universal to our experience as humans. But in our sinful fallenness, we all tend to think this. If my unpleasant circumstances would change... I would be happy and fulfilled. And if I could get the people in my life who are triggering problems and pain in my experience, if I could get them to change, I would also be happier and more fulfilled. In four decades of, of, of ministry and in countless marital counseling opportunities, Kim and I have have decided that we can conclude something about all of those experiences that we can easily conclude about our own desire for healthy marriage and sanctification. When any couple sits down and they say, we, we want help, they, they do, and we praise God for that. But if you just kind of pull back the curtain, there's this instinct in everyone that says, the husband's sitting there thinking, yeah, I've got some issues that we could probably talk about, but... If you would fix her, it would be much better. And you know, she's thinking, if he were fixed, much better. Oh, we could deal with my stuff, but 
I'd like for him to be fixed too. That's, that's natural. We all understand that. Kim thinks that all the time. And she's right. <laughs> Is it really that easy? In other words, it's far too easy to believe that change for the better occurs in circum- if circumstances in, and others would, would change before us, instead of us. But the Bible offers a very different pathway for change. The biblical pathway for change means to make change in, drumroll, yourself. For you to change, for me to change. Now, this does not mean that we ignore the need for change in circumstances. We pray for those. If I have a circumstance where I'm sick or I'm having surgery, I would ask you to pray for that, that that would change in some way. We can certainly pray to that end. It doesn't mean that we, we ignore the need for others to change. If you see sin in someone's life, there's a lot of scripture that says help correct and encourage that. That they would change in their understanding of righteousness. But according to scripture, the focus for change takes place in you, in our hearts. This is the subject of Paul's instruction here in Ephesians 4 particularly in verses 22, 23, and 24. Verse 22, in reference to your former manner of life, your life as an unbeliever, you lay aside that life. You lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed, you change in the spirit of your thinking, of your mind, and you put on the new you, the new self, the new man, the new woman, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Listen, Christ and Christianity are are, are not things that you add to your life. When you're converted, when you're saved, when you're regenerated, it means fundamental and total change in who you are, how you think, what you think, what you say, how you live, how you speak. We've said it over and over. Paul crystallized it in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creature, new creation. Then he says it simply. Behold, old things have passed away and new things, a new life has come. So the task of putting on this new man is comprehensive, it's all-inclusive in your living. It's, we say it so often, Jesus is not to be a part of your life. Jesus is the point, the point of life, the point of living, the aim of all life. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, quote, we must never do the work, sanctification, in compartments, We must put on the new man, not only in certain parts of our life, it must be in the whole of our lives, end quote. This is not a passive pursuit. You don't just let go and let God change you. You have to add cooperative effort to the work of God that he has begun to change you into the image of his son, It's 
synergistic, as we say. Sanctification is, involves our cooperation with God. We see that very clearly in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but also much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's pretty man-centered, isn't it? You work out your salvation. Next phrase, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's why we call sanctification a cooperative effort. God applies his resources, his power to our change, but it involves us making efforts of dying to self, saying no to the debilitating lusts of deceit we just read about. As we've been studying, this all begins with our thinking being renewed in the spirit of our minds. Remember that this is a change from the way we used to think, which causes how we live, to how we shall now think and how we should live. Look back at the emphasis on thinking that we've looked at so many times. Verse 17, don't walk anymore as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. See that mental imagery? Their thinking, being darkened in their understanding, a second application of that, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance, a third application of our thinking that is in them, and a fourth, because of the hardness of their heart, the mission control central of our decision-making and our values. And then that great contrast, but you, verse 20, you didn't learn, there's our thinking again, learn Christ in this way. All genuine Christian living is related to our relationship with Jesus who is alive, who can be related to, who can be enjoyed as our Savior, our friend, our shepherd. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as a man thinks within himself, as a man thinks within himself, so he is. So how we think determines who we are. And that's actually the, as it were, the meat inside the two pieces of bread of this sandwich in verses 22 to 24. Lay aside the old self, verse 22, be renewed in your thinking and the spirit of your mind, verse 23, now put on the new self, verse 24. Now we've been looking at this, just a high altitude of the last three sermons, the, the, the big part of this passage. It really divides into three parts of plan, God's plan for genuine change. Verse 22, you got to forsake your past. You got to forsake your past if you're going to change. Verse 23, you have to transform your thinking, your mind. You have to think differently, think biblically. Believe God's way is true over the lusts of deceit that are a part of our old way of thinking. And then thirdly, which we'll look at today, you have to consecrate your life. You have to devote your life to living a new way. Devote your life to living holy and righteously. Today, we'll dive specifically into what it means to do number three. Consecrate your life. Putting on the new man, the new person, the new man, the new woman. Paul often talks about this change as describing to believers to become what you are. Think about that. Become what you are. We're declared righteous, declared holy, declared adoptive children, men, women, sons, and daughters of God. We belong to him. Become commensurate with that. Go back to verse 
One, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Become who you are. Walk worthy of the salvation that God's given you. Dan Wallace writes, The practical paradox is that while freedom from sin's eternal penalty is already ours, freedom from the former way of life, a life of sin, comes only through our daily quest for obedience, our daily quest for purity. These are lifestyle commitments that every believer is called to make. There is no let go and let God. There is no passive, God, you do it for me or it won't be done. We have to lean hard into making choices of obedience and choices of purity, as we'll see in a minute, choices of righteousness and choices of holiness. So let's get a little bit more specific by looking just at verse 24, which is a call for these lifestyle commitments. We're going to kind of break the passage down grammatically by looking at four actions for becoming who you are in Christ. It's a strange proposition, I know, but that's exactly what he's saying. Four actions, four things you need to do for becoming who you are in Christ so that you can walk in a manner worthy of your calling. We've been told to put off the old man. We've been taught to think with a renewed mind. And now it comes to the action. Roll up your sleeves. How do you become who you are in Christ? Four actions. First is in the first phrase of verse 24. Commit to radical change. Number one, commit to radical change. And put on the new you, the new self. The new man, literally. By man, he means the self, who you are. This is not masculine. This is a person. Put on the new man if you're a new man, the new woman if you're a woman, the new you. As we've been studying for weeks in Ephesians 4, Paul is clear that there should be a radical, a demonstrable, an obvious difference between a person's life before and after conversion. Said it said another way, Jesus is far too amazing and far too powerful and far too wonderful for him to invade a person's life and nothing happened. Beginning in verse 17, he tells us that because believers are new people in Christ, they can no longer live like they used to. Walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Change! Don't stay the same. You see that? It's clear. It's obvious. Don't act like an unbeliever. Don't act like Gentiles who are unbelievers. Don't act like you used to. Don't think like you used to. Verse 24 is explicit. We are to change when we embrace the gospel. You put on a new you. This change from the old person to a new person involves a change in your character. It's a moral change. It involves a change in your desires. You want different things than you used to. You hate your old desires. It's a change in values. You value different things. You value 
The relationships you have in church, the relationships you have with unbelievers become evangelistic. It's a change in thinking. It's a change in behavior. It's putting on a new you. Paul says it like this to the Romans, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision or strategy for the flesh in regards to its lust. That's interesting. How, how do you put on a person? Well, it's a cousin to what Paul says in verse 20, but you did not learn Christ in this way. In other words, it's personal. Oh, one of the great, one of the great trap doors in anyone's faith is you begin to think of your Christianity as behavior modification, as checking moral boxes, political change of ideology, you name it, rather than a relationship with Jesus who's alive. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no strategy for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Listen to Paul, how he says it in Romans 6, 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him in, through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, Paul's saying, if you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, which is essential to salvation, if you believe in that amazing power, that amazing power is what God grants you as a given to change so that we too might walk in newness of life. It should echo in your heart. You should know this passage well, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, who you are, the, the containers of your soul, as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed, pressed into the mold of this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect or complete. So be transformed by how you think into someone new. Now, we've said all along our study of Ephesians that Colossians and Ephesians are parallel books. He says much of the same theology in kind of different phrasing to both audiences. Listen to this parallel passage in Colossians to what we're studying in Ephesians 4. It's in Colossians 3. Do not lie to one another. By the way, in verse 25, lay aside all falsehood. It's the same idea. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Well, there's no distinction between anyone in the church, Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. Colossians 3.11. Now, this is both heavy and hopeful. Listen, if you're like me, you read this and you say, hey, well, I need to change. And then I put on the man. I hope I've changed. I hope I've changed enough. And you get, get a little uh, bothered by that. I, I, I want to change. I hope that God's doing change. And, and that's an okay burden to bear. But know this. There's the flip side of that coin. This is hopeful. Paul would not be telling you to become a new you if that were impossible. 
Change is possible. You don't have to be lassoed to your sin, to your old self. You don't have to be be tethered to the old you. There is change possible. There is hope available. The command to put off the old man assumes that you can change. The command to put on the new man means you can become someone different. That means that we can live our lives in the light of the mighty change God has already effected in us in justification, and we can become who we are in Christ. Now, we're going to come back to this in chapter 5, verse 8, but just sneak a peek down the page. In fact, let's look back at verse 7, chapter 5, verse 7. Do not be partakers with them. He's going to go back and contrast our life with our unbelieving life. Don't be partakers with them, unbelievers. For you were, this is interesting, formerly darkness. He didn't say you walked in darkness, you lived in darkness. He says you were darkness. But now you are light. Not you walk in light, you see in the light. You are light in the Lord. So do what? Live, walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Trying, verse 10, to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, that personal element again. We'll come back to that and we'll be reminded of 4, 22 to 24 when we get there. Hey, are you committed to radical, total transformation as a believer? Are there sins that you're holding on to when you're an unbeliever that you just refuse to be aggressive about repenting from? Are you committed to a radical, total transformation? Well, that's what we need to do, so how do we do that? That brings us to number two, the second action for becoming who you are in Christ. Commit to radical change. Number two, commit to imitate God. Now, this is interesting because you find it in the text and also in the context Put on the new you, which in God has been created. That's the literal reading. I think the New American Standard, which adds in the likeness of God, is a fair interpretation. It's exactly what it intends to communicate. Put on the new you, which this new you is in the likeness, the imitation of God. That's where it's been created. It's been created in the person and character of God to be imitated. A few years ago, there was a craze. Maybe you saw it. Maybe you participated in it. Maybe you're still participating in it. Of little bracelets that were going around, little silicon bracelets. What WWJD? What would Jesus do? I'm going to confess to you. When I saw that, I thought, kind of rolled my eyes, and I thought, that's kind of cheesy and hokey. I mean, whatever. I'm not going to judge you, but I was judging. It was bad. Um, And then I began thinking about the statement. If you're confronted with a situation, a circumstance, and you were to ask yourself, what would Jesus do, conclude that, and then do that? It's actually really good theology. Really good theology. What would Jesus do? Well, you say, well, I thought you said imitate God. Drum roll, 
Jesus is God. This new self has been created in God, but go back up to verse 20. Learning Christ is the way forward. Heard him, taught in him. Truth is in Jesus. Paul's going to be explicit in just a few verses. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. Is that clear enough? As beloved children, and he our Father. How do you know Paul is calling for imitation here? Well, look at the rest of the verse. Because we are to be in the likeness of God, in God, which is created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. God is how we define righteousness and holiness in his character. God himself, that's where we understand righteousness and holiness. So to apply chapter 5, verse 1 in imitating God, we must understand what God's like before we can imitate him. And here we learn he's righteous and he's holy. And that's how we were created to be like him in righteousness and holiness. We'll get some other attributes later and we read it earlier in 5.9, goodness and truth as well. This has obvious implication, the obvious implication that you and I have a working and a thorough understanding of the character of God. We have recommended books that we we uh, recommend to the church usually you know, anywhere from six to a dozen every year. And every year since we've been doing this, on that book list has been something about the attributes of God. And that's on purpose. In order to imitate God, you need to know what he's like. Do you have a lifelong passion, conviction, to learn what he's like? Can I say it this way? Your, your life's goal, my life's goal, should be to be an expert on God. To know what he's like, what he's done, how he responds, how he acts. The question at hand is whether we have that intimate working relationship, excuse me, knowledge of God. And the context would point us to the quickest, most unambiguous way to know God, which is through his son, Jesus Christ. The best way to know God is to know Christ. Colossians 1.19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in him. Colossians 2.9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. To know Christ is to know God. There's almost a humorous interchange that happens about this in John chapter 14 at the upper room discourse and that last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. In John 14, there's a conversation that John records. Jesus says, if you had known me, speaking to the 11 who were left after Jesus departed, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Why would he say that? Because he's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen him. Philip raises his hand and says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and you've not yet come to know me, Philip? 
He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Sometimes I wonder in our understanding of the Trinity, if we forget the solidarity and union that when we see the Lord Jesus Christ, we are seeing the fullness of God the Father as well. Matthew Henry helps us when he writes, to think that here is a God, that he is such a one as the scripture has revealed him to be, and being infinitely wise and powerful, holy, just, and good, and that this God governs the world and gives law to all creatures, and that he is owner and ruler, and that his hand, in his hand our breath is, and in his hands are our times, our hearts, and all our ways are before him. Happy are they that can please themselves with these thoughts. Happy are they who can please themselves with these thoughts. Isn't that good? Do, you, do, we, do we find pleasure and happiness in the thought of God? You only will find pleasure and happiness in the thought of God if you know God as he really is, as wonderful, as amazing as he is. So commit to imitate God, which presupposes knowing God. A third action for becoming who you are. Commit to radical change. Commit to imitate God. Now these next two work in tandem as a couplet. Align with biblical righteousness. Align, conform yourself to biblical righteousness. Now why do we say biblical righteousness? Look at that last phrase. Righteousness and holiness of the truth. Of the truth. At the end of verse 24, Paul gives us these attributes, righteousness and holiness, but they are defined by the truth, not by our intuition, not by our guesswork. And where is truth? Well, we found out earlier, truth is in Jesus, in verse 20. And where do we learn about Jesus? You caught me. This is your read the Bible more sermon. <laughs> we learn in Scripture. We learn in Scripture. Righteousness is defined by God himself, his character, his son, which are only defined by the Jesus and the God of the Bible. 1 John 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him sins, that means misses the mark. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. He's talking about a life of perpetual sin. We know he's talking about not talking about doing any sin because in chapter 1, he says, if we say we have no sin, we call God a liar. If we're faithful and just to confess our sins, he's, he's faithful just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So we know that we have sin. John's not talking about perfection. He's talking about a life of sin that is recalcitrant to repentance. Verse 7, 1 John 3, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteousness. Then 1 John 2, 29, 
If you know that he, Jesus, is righteous, you know that everyone who also, also who practices righteousness is born of him. If you're born of him, if you're a believer, you live, you practice righteousness. Let me give you a giant definition of righteousness. Ready? Doing what's right according to God. Righteousness. Doing what's right according to God, which means obviously according to his word. That takes us back to the phrase, the truth. It's biblical. It's critical to understand. What are you using as your standard of authority for righteousness and sin, for right and wrong, for good and bad, for better and best? Is it, is it God's book, God's word? Is it the scriptures? The new person here has been created by God in his likeness, in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So righteousness is the characteristic of those who say they belong to Christ. And if if unrighteousness, a lifestyle of unrepentant sin is present, then it's dem- demonstrative that you, you, you're not really a Christian no matter the profession. I have a favorite verb in the Bible. <laughs> I know that sounds weird. I do have a favorite verb in the Bible. And it probably is yours too, whether you know it or not. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, listen to this discussion of righteousness. Do you not know, Paul says, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Those who are living lives of unrighteousness, lifestyles of unrighteousness, will not go to heaven. And before you say, what what does that mean? He tells you, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, sexual sin, idolaters, adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. They won't go to heaven. And here's my favorite verb in all the Bible. It's a past tense state of being. Such were, were some of you. What does that imply? You're not that way anymore. You were that way, but God has changed you and you have leaned into your own sanctifying cooperation with God's work to change from those lifestyles. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. Jesus went to the heart of the issue when he said, Matthew 5, 20 in the Sermon on the Mount, For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses, is greater than, the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll not go to heaven. Well, what does that mean? The scribes and the Pharisees were very righteous externally. They looked great on the outside. Jesus said you excel their righteousness because it goes to your heart. You love the Lord. You want to serve the Lord. It's relationship with the Lord. It's not just a box you check. It's not just behavior modification. Righteousness. Are you pursuing righteousness? Instead of unrighteousness, 
We'll have a lot more to study about that in the coming weeks. There's a fourth action for becoming who you are in Christ. Align with biblical holiness. Align with biblical holiness. Again, it's biblical because it's holiness of the truth in the truth at the end there, and that's biblical. Holiness of the truth. One of the most recognized attributes of God in the Bible is His holiness, and for good reasons. Isaiah 6.3, seraphim, cherubim, hovering around the throne. Isaiah sees this vision, and they shout back and forth what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. They probably, the idea is they're hovering. They move a little bit. Holy, holy, holy. They keep saying it over and over and over. Some people say, why do they say holy three times? And I've heard someone say, well, it's because that's how the song goes. No, that's not how the song goes. That's a way of putting an exclamation point on it. And this is what's interesting. Nowhere in the Bible do you see God as righteous, 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 just, 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 merciful, 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 loving, kind, loving, kind, loving, kind. Good, 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 loving, loving. does say he's holy, holy, holy for emphasis. Pick up the scene in Revelation chapter 4. John gets a peek into heaven. This is... He sees the throne. Guess what he sees? The throne with God on it. And there's cherubim and seraphim floating and hovering around the throne. And guess what they're doing? They're shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. As amazing as that is, compound that with the fact that this is 850 years after Isaiah. And they're still doing it. They have not exhausted themselves from recognizing and praising and talking about the holiness of God. They're still amazed. A millennium later, there's, do you think they're probably still doing that today? I would think so. And we'll join them one day. Do you weary of God's holiness? The angels don't. God is totally and absolutely separate from anything defiling or contrary to his character. That's holiness. He's separate. But he's also morally perfect. Those are the two nuances of holiness. Isn't it interesting that his holiness underlines how separate he is from us, but also we're invited to be holy as he is? Quoting Leviticus 20, verse 26, Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 15, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Be holy like God. Be holy because God is holy. Hate Sin. Hate your sin. Resist the lusts of deceit. Put on the truth of Christ. Pursue being morally pleasing to the Lord in holiness. I love how Peter describes Jesus in John 6.69. You are the Holy One of God. He recognized that. Revelation 15.4. Who will not fear... O Lord, and glorify your name. 
For you alone are holy. I asked some friends to come along and help us with this. A.W. Tozer came. He says this, We cannot grasp the true meaning of divine holiness by thinking of something or someone very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power. He may admire God's wisdom. But his holiness, he cannot even imagine. Jonathan Edwards says, A true love for God must begin with a delight in his holiness and not a delight with any other attribute, for no other attribute is truly lovely without this, holiness. And one of my favorite insights about holiness is A.W. Pink. He uses an old, old word, but we can give a synonym for it. He says, An ineffably holy God, which means unspeakably, indescribable, an ineffably holy God who has the utmost abhorrence of all sin was never invented by any of Adam's fallen descendants, end quote, no one would invent a holy God who hates sin knowing we're sinners. Believers are called here to imitate God's holy character according to His holy word. So knowledge and understanding of God's righteousness in tandem with His holiness develop a spiritual allergy to sin and to unrighteousness. It bothers us. And it should. It will generate righteous anger, verse 26 will tell us, against unrighteousness. And remember, this is all holiness and righteousness according to truth, as in contrast to the lust of lies, deceit, in verse 22, our old life. So growth, putting on the new you, Spiritual growth means learning how to align our lives with God's righteousness and God's holiness in proportion to our growth in reading, our growth in understanding, our growth in applying Scripture. Terry Johnson says so well, reliable thoughts of God are to be found only in the Scriptures. It's the only place they can be trusted. Jay Adams says, our problem is not that we do not have what we need in the Bible. <laughs> but, the pro but what we do have, excuse me, let me read that again. Our problem is not that what we, uh, can I try it a third time? <laughs> Our problem is not that we do not have what we need in the Bible, but that we do not have enough of the Bible in us, which we need. He's right. We pray. Thank you, Father, for the grace of this day. Dismiss us with fresh thoughts of our great Savior to put off the old, to put on the new by thinking correctly and rightly and biblically. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good afternoon.